Welcome to our weekly recording of the service here at Bigger and Blackmount Churches. I'm Mike Fucella, I'm the minister here, and we are so glad that you could join us. It's my prayer that you will be blessed by the message this week. If you'd like to find out more about us, please do get in touch. Contact me at biggerkirk09 at gmail.com. That's biggerkirk09, all lowercase, at gmail.com. So here's the message this week. This morning's reading is taken from the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 to the end, and then chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And this is about the story of God's creation. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in all our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we turn to reflect on God's word. Lord, we sit before a very, very ancient piece of wisdom. Lord, help us to respect it as your word. speaking through it, and help us not only to understand it as much as we are able, but to also live by it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So our passage this morning is a piece with the passage that we saw last Sunday. God, the artist, creator, continues his good creation. And here we come to the afternoon of the sixth day, having been through day one, two, three, four, and five. Come to the sixth day, which is the last day 
in which God works on his initial creation. John Goldingay, in his commentary on this passage, said that in the more liturgical churches, the lectionary reading would sometimes start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and then it would skip over to Genesis 1, 26, the beginning of our passage this morning. And it would leave out all the rest of creation and go directly to the creation of human beings, as if the creation of human beings was the only thing that mattered. That's how we human beings, to our shame, have often thought about ourselves and our relationship with God's world. Our language often betrays our prejudice. We call the rest of the world our environment as if its only purpose is to be useful to us, as if we are king and everything else is there to serve us. But the Bible is clear that in creation there is only one king and that is God. And furthermore, he is a benevolent ruler over all he has made. He cares for all of it, from the dome of the sky to the seas and the dry land and all the creatures that teem in them. God cares for even, even the creeping things mentioned in verse 26. All are important to God. God blesses all things along with human beings. Everything is so important that on the sixth day, God creates human beings. Everything is so important that on the sixth day, he creates human beings to be the servants of that vast array of life. We as human beings are not meant to be the kings, but we are meant to be the servants. In this passage, God gives us human beings a vocation, a calling, a job to do. The job of humanity described in verse 28 is threefold. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature. Along with the other creatures of sea and sky, the first bit of our calling is to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. But the other creatures also have this same calling. Look back in verse 22. Because of that, being fruitful, increasing, and filling shouldn't be seen as a competition. We, along with all the creatures, are to fill the earth together not pushing them out to make room for us. That was never God's intention, though, sadly, throughout history, that has often been our practice. 
Although the first bit of our calling is a common calling with all the other creatures, the next two bits are unique to human beings. God calls human beings to subdue and rule. But how? How, how are we to subdue and rule? To my mind, that seems a vital question because I think we can and we do get that part of our vocation so terribly wrong. Well, verse 28, with that job description, comes, of course, directly after verse 27, where there is a vital piece of information. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Being made in the image of God, I I would submit, crucially shapes the way we are to subdue and rule or how we are to fulfill that job description that we are given by God. Made in the image of God. In the ancient Near East, in the historical context of our passage, whenever a king established his kingdom, he would have statues of himself erected in the town square and in other public places so that people would know that he was the ruler there. The statue of a king was a representation of the fact that the town and its people were subject to the rule and to the laws of that particular king whose statue was erected in its center. And so it was his will that would be done in that town. The same picture seems to be what is painted here in Genesis 1. The word for image is selim, the same as statue or idol that we find in the rest of the Old Testament. And what it seems to be saying is that human beings are a statue, an idol, a representation of the rule of the creator God. A statue, a representation of the king of his own creation. So our calling to subdue and rule then is to subdue and rule in the way that God wills, not to subdue and rule in our own way, not as we see fit, but as he sees fit. We are not the kings and queens of creation. Another important point here is image bearing is not about how we look. We don't look like God necessarily, and it's not even about our capacity as human beings vis-a-vis other creatures. Certainly, we don't have the capacity that God has. It's not about our capacity as, as clever homo sapiens or as uh, higher-order primates that makes us after the image of God. But what it says here in Genesis, 
uh, chapter 1, verse 27, is that image-bearing is about what we are called to do. We are rulers and subduers because we are called by God to do a job. We are to subdue and rule according to God's will. And yes, because of our capacity, because of our unique human facilities, we uniquely, amongst all the creatures, are able to rule according to God's will. Because we are uniquely made in God's image, we of all the creatures can commune most intimately with God. We're not a dumb statue like the image might suggest. We can hear God's voice. We can know his mind. We can follow his will. And we can imitate him. I wonder if a good image for our role, our vocation as human beings, is the image of a gardener. It's an image that we get later in chapter 2 of Genesis. And I think that it is a fitting image. Think about what a good gardener does. A good gardener watches nature. A good gardener watches the way God has made things. He or she studies the seasons and the way of plants and creeping things, birds and animals. And a good gardener then works with the grain of nature and not against it. Isn't that the way we are to fulfill our calling to subdue and rule? Indeed, I, I would submit that, that this is how we are to live all of life. It's how we're to live with one another as part of creation with understanding and respect. Our calling as good gardeners is to study one another, and to listen to one another. But above all, our calling is to listen to the voice of God, guiding us to serve, to serve him, and to serve the whole of creation. As God's work of creation draws to a conclusion on the evening of the sixth day, God, the artist creator, steps back and he looks at what he has created. He looks at the dome of the sky, the dry land, the patterns of day and night, teeming life in the skies and oceans and on the land. And he looks at his own image, whom he has set to subdue and rule over it all. And God says at that point, not just that it is good, as he has said on the other days, but he says at that point, it is very good. God's creation is now complete in its vast array as it says in chapter 2, verse 1. It was good after the other days of creation, but it was not yet complete. It wasn't complete until human beings were there as part of a whole. 
to rule and to subdue. So putting human beings into creation was the element that gave the planet its greatest potential for good, for being very good. But also, we later learn, putting human beings here gave the greatest potential for disaster. Let's pause now as we reflect on what we've heard and what we've read and, and sing to God's praise the hymn, O Lord, the clouds are gathering. As God's work of creation draws to a conclusion. Oh, I've done that bit already. So, so our job description as human beings, male and female, was to subdue and rule according to God's will. Sadly, however, we and all our human race have failed and we failed abysmally. We failed at fulfilling our uniquely human job description. In chapter 3 of Genesis, human beings, both male and female, refused to listen and to respond to God's voice. They, they choose to strike out on their own. Instead of being connected to and listening to God, they decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. They decide for themselves how to subdue and how to rule. And the Bible says that all of creation is thrown out of kilter because of this. The result of humanity's failure is death. The result of humanity's failure is death, not just for human beings, but for the whole cosmos along with us. And because of us. God the artist creator however. Never walks away from his creation. God didn't walk away on the sixth day. When he had finished all his initial creating. God didn't walk away after that day. That humanity chose to rebel against him. God doesn't walk away. From the very day that man walked away from God, God has been restoring and reweaving the fabric of his creation. From that day, before that day, the Bible says God had a plan. God had a creative plan, a plan that revealed the depth of his love like nothing else in creation ever did. God had a plan to get creation back on track. And we faintly hear the theme of that plan in our passage when it talks about the seventh day of creation, that bit that we haven't talked about yet. You see, not only can creation be compared to an artist's canvas or a craftsman's work, but it also can be compared to a grand symphony. God, the three-personed trinity, is like composer, conductor, and first chair violinist in a symphony. All at the same time, God is writing, conducting, and playing his greatest magnum opus. 
In the first part of Genesis, we have a sonata full of themes and patterns of notes that God will come back to over and over again throughout his story with creation. We have this sonata of themes and patterns of notes that he will bring to a crescendo in the New Testament as God brings his grand opus of redemption to its climax. On the seventh day, it says, that God finished his work and God blessed the seventh day and he made that day holy. We know a lot about the seventh day. Sabbatarianism was once very important in Scotland, mostly for all the wrong reasons. But the Sabbath is important in the Bible. The Sabbath day comes up again and again in various places in the Old and New Testaments. And when it comes up again, it usually has to do with how humans are to behave or not to behave on the Sabbath. But here in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2 rather, at this point, there's no commandment for humans to stop or rest on the Sabbath day. The text says that the Sabbath rest was holy. God called it holy. Holiness, of course, is God's domain. God alone is holy. The rest of the Old Testament for, for humans to presume to enter what is holy without proper precautions or without the equipping and invitation of God would and did end in disaster. Creation. Not even the human part of creation at this point is invited into the Sabbath rest that God enjoys. It is God's day. It's not until human beings have sinned and fallen and not until God has chosen one family out of all the families of the earth to fulfill his plan of redemption that we ever get a command to keep. Sabbath. And the commandment, if you remember, comes after God graciously saves his children from slavery in Egypt. It comes in Exodus in the Ten Commandments, and it comes in the laws of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. What is interesting about the, the commandment of the Sabbath in Deuteronomy is that the children of Abraham are, are told that the Sabbath is not just for them but it's something they are to invite the rest of creation to enter into and enjoy. On the Sabbath day, Deuteronomy 5 says, Neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns shall work. And later they're told that the Sabbath is not just one day out of seven, but one year out of seven years. And when 70 times seven years pass, 50 years, they're to celebrate a super Sabbath called the Jubilee. And there in the laws about Sabbath years, the specific beneficiary of the Sabbath is, is not human beings 
It is the land itself. In the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Here in Sabbath is a mysterious theme. It's a pattern of notes that make only make glorious sense when we come to the gospel of Christ. In the gospel, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The writer of the Hebrews 2 returns to this theme of Sabbath and he equates the Sabbath rest with the redemption that only Christ through his death and resurrection brings. For the writer of Hebrews, it looks like this. We humans, all of us, have been excluded from the garden And we've been excluded from eternal life because of our sin. We've been excluded because we have not fulfilled God's purposes for us. We've been excluded because we have not done the job that we were asked to do from the very beginning. Because we have failed at our vocation to subdue and rule according to God's way, we have taken the whole of creation down with us. But, but in Christ Jesus, we human beings are invited not just back to the garden, but we are invited into the true Sabbath rest of the seventh day where God is. And we are given that invitation to share We're given that invitation to share with our neighbors near and far. And we're given that invitation to share in the Sabbath rest with the whole of creation. So, what we do here at this table, by the gracious invitation of our Savior, is a representing of that invitation. A representing of that invitation to partner with God in a repaired world that is put together again by a loving, wise creator, artist, restorer, composer, conductor, and accomplished violinist. Let's receive God's blessing. Brothers and sisters, go into the world and through Christ who equips and enables you Fulfill your vocation as servants of God and servants of his creation. The blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest and remain with us all evermore. Amen.